if you have a Bible, flip to Deuteronomy 6, and um, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to read some from Psalm 19, a verse from Isaiah, and uh, you might also flip to Mark 12, and you can maybe do Deuteronomy and Mark, and then just listen when I read the other ones. But uh, this series has been the foundation series, and I really tried to give a broad, redemptive perspective, so that's why I've been pulling a lot of various passages to try to bring them together for us. All right, Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. I'll read our passages and then we'll pray. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. These are the words of God. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in the land flowing with milk and honey. And this is the great Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them on a, excuse me, as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And then in verse nine, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then if you want to flip to Psalm 19, you can. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. And I'll read Isaiah 33:22. if you want to flip to Mark 12. Isaiah 33:22 says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king, he will save us. And then Mark 12, 28 through 31. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? That's a good question, right? Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Note that Jesus adds mind into there. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we come to you as your people, and we come to you as people who are grateful for your law word. 
We are humbled that you would covenant with us and bring us close to you. Father, as a nation right now, we are very far from the promises of your covenant blessing. Uh, in fact, we readily admit that we are under your sovereign judgment. And we also admit that we deserve far worse. I ask today that you would grant your church, the true people of God, a deep and abiding repentance for allowing your law to be trampled and for farming out our responsibilities and for standing idly by while a rival God was enthroned in our country. Help us, we ask and pray. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So as I've said, in this, uh, said before in this series called Foundations, uh, the doctrines that we have covered already and we are going to cover are foundational beliefs that are found in the Bible, and they are beliefs that ought to shape our worldview. So let me explain that, though, for a second, because every, plan, every person on the planet has a worldview like it or not. So you, you rolled up in here today with a worldview that either you were fully cognizant of in that moment or you had subconsciously set aside, but you have it nonetheless. So everyone has it, even the most staunch atheist has a worldview. And this worldview, we should know, is basically a set of suppositions, a set of preconditions that are assumed, things that we just assume about the world. You know, you assume you walk outside, you're going to have plenty of oxygen to breathe and you're not going to suffer for a lack of oxygen. Those are things that we just assume because we, we know that that's the case. So it's a, a set of suppositions and preconditions that are assumed, and like glasses, we deploy those things in order to see clearly. So in order to see and assess and live and exist in this world, we have these sets of glasses that we put on, these worldview preconditions that we view the world through those, those lenses. So think of it like this. The fountainhead of this particular river, to switch metaphors here, the fountainhead of this river is our religious presuppositions. Our religious presuppositions. This flows downstream into our culture, which then, of course, flows down into how we act and so on. So that's the beginning of the river. The fountainhead is the religious presuppositions we have. And then from there, culture is developed. And from there, we act and respond and live and move and exist and do what we do every day. Uh, it was Henry Van Til. He remarked that culture is religion externalized, which is a, is a very apt way of putting it. Culture, what, if somebody asks you, what is culture? Oh, that's easy. It's just religion externalized. It's, it's what you believe inside your religious presuppositions that you then externalize into the world. And of course, Van Til meant that what we do individually or collectively or as families and so on, what we do is in fact an expression of the God that we serve. That's why James will harp on, don't just tell me your faith, show me it. Because in showing it, that proves what is going on inside. And oftentimes what's going on inside isn't actually uh, what we're per, you know, portraying or what we're putting out there into the world. So what we do, that culture, that is an expression of the God we serve. So our actions, what we do, always and without fail, will always be done in accordance to our beliefs. So if you believe a certain thing, you will act a certain way. Moreover, as humans who are made in the image of God, we all act in accordance to what we perceive to be the law. This is just another way of saying it. We all act in accordance to what we perceive to be the law. I can think nothing else than the fact that I strolled into Aristeter, and boy, there sure are a lot of unvaccinated people 
with their masks still on. And, but that's the perception, though. People perceive that I have to follow this law, and therefore their actions line up with it. Now, if you have a biblical view and you see the law of God as transcending anything that man comes up with, you're just strolling around smiling and, uh, you know, grabbing your food and, and just being happy because you have oxygen in your, in, your, in your body and in your brain. And, and you can, with a clean conscience, say, I'm following the law. Now, the laws we're talking about are different, but everybody's acting in accordance to what they perceive to be what dictates righteousness or what dictates reality. So, but no one escapes that. Everybody does. Some people think Lord Northam is the great you know, God and Savior of, of Virginia. So they do whatever he says. And others would say, well, actually, Jesus is king. Therefore, we're going to do what he says. And now you have a rival issue, a rival God being portrayed, a rival law in society. So ethics then stems from religious convictions. Even the most ardent, and I've, I've talked to folks like that, like a, a George Mason, or it, it's, I'm not really religious. Never believe someone when they say that. I'm not religious at all. Well, no, you have an ethical grid that stems from your religion. You may worship yourself, you may worship the state, you may worship somebody, but, you know, I think it was Marley, you got to serve somebody, right? So that's what they're doing. Don't believe them when they say they're not. Show them in their action, in their life, that they are following an ethical grid and an ethical pattern. So this is why um, we insist on gospel preaching. Gospel preaching must confront idolatries and injustices because it's designed to do that. True gospel preaching will always go after idols and will always go after injustices because all of those things are intimately connected. Gospel preaching means that we are attempting to align something that is disjointed. We are trying to apply the ethics of God himself to our particular situation, a particular circumstance, or a, a set of religious suppositions. So this is sort of my thesis for this morning. To, to preach the gospel is in fact to preach the law, and to preach the law is to give fuel to the gospel. So... In all of our proclamations, in all of our discipleship, in all of our teaching, and uh, in, in our general preaching of righteousness to people, and in, in, in our efforts on social media uh, or not, or where, you know, who, whatever you find yourself situated, we are demonstrating that the good news of, of Christ's kingdom and lordship is most important. That's what we're saying. And, and get this, it's the only thing that can make the crooked thing straight again. So we're just... Law, gospel, fire preaching, get after it because we're dislodging something or like an idolatry or we're trying to put something back together that's disjointed, that's been jarred apart because of the state or because of false religions and all these things. We are doing the Lordship of Christ. Uh, we are preaching the Lordship of Christ in all of our doing. So two questions as we talk about this concept of law. We've covered a lot of topics in this series, but... Um, when it comes to the law itself, there are two questions. Number one, what is the law of God? Okay, that's a good question to ask because I grew up thinking the law of God was just this horrible thing. That's, that's the worldview I was taught. Not intentionally, but I think just it, it became that. So what is the law of God? And then the second question is, why does it matter tomorrow morning? Why does it matter tomorrow morning on Monday? So let's look at our text real quick. If you're in Deuteronomy 6, I'm just going to sort of summarize as we go. 
In Deuteronomy 6, the nation of Israel was given the law so that as, so that, so that as a kingdom, a conquering kingdom of priests and kings, they would go into the land, they would take the promised land, and then they would do the law there. That's verse 1. That's what he was emphasizing. It was important to make sure that the children understood this too, so that the way of life in this kingdom would in fact be a blessing to, to all. Uh, and that is the way that, and that not only is it to be a blessing to all, it's supposed to be a way of life, a way of living, a way to be human. That's what the Torah gives us. And it's supposed to be perpetual. So that's in verse two. So, so kids, you're being taught these principles because at some point you're going to be an adult and you have to function as an adult. And God help us if we have another generation that says, I can't adult today. We, you have to adult. It's a noun first and foremost. And you can try to make it a verb all you want, but you sound ridiculous, so don't do it. But we want you to grow up into this stuff so that you can teach your kids and so that we have a generation of righteous warriors like Gideon who will take the land and who will stop being a bunch of whiny ninny hammers who just want to complain. No, you need to know these things because it's supposed to be perpetual. God is faithful to a thousand generations. That's, that's the promise. So children, you are a part of that. So if Israel would do the law, they would live longer because God blesses obedience. That's what he's pointing out. So if they would do this law, they would multiply greatly. Verse 3. And notice the connection to love, by the way, which is emphasized in the Shema. They were to confess the oneness of God. Verse 4. That's Echad in Hebrew. The Lord our God is Echad. He is one. And they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and might. Verse 5. Notice it wasn't, you're supposed to think lofty thoughts about God. No, you're supposed to love God because that stems from the heart and not the brain. Don't just think truths about God. Love God. Love the truths about God. So the words spoken were to be on their hearts, verse 6, which I take to mean that the law of God, which is what we're talking about, that's what was spoken, um, ought to take root in a circumcised heart that loves God, loves obedience to God, and takes great joy in it all. So, parents, that's a lot of work for us as with, with our kids, but children, you should know that too. You're supposed to love God. You're supposed to love obedience to God. That's the first thing you should be on. What does God require of me today? To love him, to love my brothers and sisters, to to love my friends, to serve others. That's what God requires. And we're supposed to take great joy in that and not complain about it. So note what happens when the law of God takes root in a person's heart. When the law takes root in your heart, it spills over. It's supposed to spill over. Israel was told to teach this heart-implanted law diligently to their children. Talking about it when sitting on the couch, when walking down the street, when going to bed, and when you wake up. Verse 7. When doing this, it's as though the law of God is strapped to our hands and our foreheads. You see many Jews at the Wailing Wall today um, with phylacteries attached. That's a literal interpretation of that. I don't take that to be a literal thing. I don't think you're supposed to tie boxes to your wrists and your forehead. Um, but the idea here in, in strapping in, in figuratively making sure the law is on your forehead and on your hands, on the doorposts and on the city gates, the reason God says this is because the covenant with God ought to guide what we think, what we do in our families and society. That's the emphasis. 
Now, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, note that, in keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. Now this passage is really not a popular passage for many evangelicals, but it should be. Here the Torah is said to be perfect, literally without blemish. The law of God is perfect. It's perfect in and of itself what it is. It revives and restores the soul. Verse 7. The testimony from God is sure. In other words, uh, it's faithful. And it makes wise the simple, foolish person. God's precepts are morally right, morally accurate, morally um, reflecting of God. It makes the heart rejoice. Uh, The commandment, he says, is pure, that is, without fault. And it enlightens a person's eyes, verse 8. The fear of the Lord, of which reverence for the law produces, is clean. That is, it's morally pure, and it endures forever. The rules of God are true and altogether righteous and just. Verse 9, these laws, these testimonies, these precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, and the fear of God ought to be yearned for more than gold. We might even say more than Bitcoin. And... They should drive us to hunger them, hunger for them more than honey itself, verse 10. And to top it off, the servants of God who treasure the law, they find great reward. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because the law of God is a beautiful thing. And the Bible celebrates it. Steve read from Psalm 119. If you're going to throw away the law of God, you might as well Thomas Jefferson your Bible. Because you have to throw out the biggest chapter in Scripture, Psalm 119, where the law, the commandments, the statutes, and everything is viewed as a beautiful, wonderful thing that guides and corrects and teaches us and trains us how to be who God wants us to be. I, didn't, I wasn't taught that. So children, you should know that. You should long for that more than anything, more than the next great Nerf gun more than the next airsoft gun, more than the next really awesome thing that girls like. <clears throat> so, <laughs> I was going to say doll, but like I'm out of that stage. So <laughs> some of you aren't, I guess. All right, Isaiah 33, 22. This is a verse you should have highlighted in your Bible. Isaiah 33, 22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our King. He will save us. Isaiah confesses here that God is the judge. And note that he is the only and only God is the legislative branch of all governance. Only God is the legislative branch of all governance. It's the only law we need. We don't need Congress. Because they just keep adding laws and burdening everybody. It's not a biblical form of government. We don't need it. We don't want it. We have a legislative branch of government. It is God. The Lord is our lawgiver. So he's the lawgiver, not man. And as a lawgiver, he rules and reigns as the king and the savior. And Isaiah 40, 17 says, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. 
So the Bible repeatedly emphasizes the sovereignty and the supremacy of God in all things. And as Lord and King, he rules over the nations. And those nations are to come to him and be healed. It is this inexhaustible rule that is made manifest in his law. Okay, you have Isaiah 2. You have other passages which speak of the mountain of the Lord. That's the church as we understand the book of Hebrews. We are the Mount Zion. And what society is supposed to look like are nations flocking to the church for wisdom on how to behave, how to govern their families, their churches, their nations. And they're to look to the law of God. Finally, Mark chapter 12. Jesus reiterates the intent and the scope of the law as it can be summarized basically in a two-tier manner of importance. First, the loving of God with the heart. Love should stem from the heart. That's the center of being, the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4 says. The heart is what makes you you. So love should stem, love for God stems from the heart, but it also stems from the soul, the mind, and strength. And that is the quintessential command of God. What is the command that God expects? If you can summarize it all, this is it. Love God with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, which means the entirety of your being. That's how we can summarize it all. It starts there. It's the top priority. And then from there, the second greatest commandment is the love of neighbor. So there are no other commands that are greater than these. When you think of the law of God and you want to summarize it, that's, that's the best way to summarize it. That's what we write in the confession, or the uh, a shorter catechism, rather, where how do you summarize the Ten Commandments? That. Love God, love neighbor. In that order. Because you can't do the second unless you have the first right. So what Jesus does here is funnel the law down to its main point of emphasis, loving God and loving neighbor. So contrary, contrary to what squishy evangelifish Christians today and how they, they misunderstand this, I want you to listen, catch this though. Jesus is not pitting law and love against each other. Please get this. If you leave with anything today, leave with this. Jesus is not pitting the law and love, those concepts, against each other. Okay? He's not. He's explaining that love can only be intelligibly understood and expressed in terms of law. Paul says the same thing in Romans 13. Love is the fulfillment of the law. This is not, I'm not making this up, this is just the New Testament understanding of law and love and their relationship. So here's, here's the point. To obey the law is to love. And to love is to obey the law. So again, Romans 13, you can look that up later, around verse 7, 8, 9, somewhere in there. Or is it, thir- yeah, Romans 13. So, so no, love is not love. I know you got to get rid of that sign you got in your front yard, Andy. <laughs> love is not love. If you're going to put a sign, if you're going to put a sign up front, say love is law. That's the biblical parameter. Love is law. So I want to back up a second, though, and explain this, especially for those who may, like me, have grown up in a church that didn't really talk much about these issues. Basic to human life is the law of God. It is basic to all of human life. It's everywhere, albeit many have tried to divorce God from it. 
Um, be it the law of gravity, something was just dropped. That's the law of gravity, perfect timing. Be it the law of gravity uh, or laws of creation and even immaterial things like laws of logic, those types of things. This law is everywhere in that it is woven through the entirety of the created order. The, you function in terms of laws. Your heart does what it does because God said that's what it should do. So we all function in terms of law. It's everywhere. And this is because the law of God is an expression of who God really is. It is God's law. So the law stems from ontology, meaning the nature of and being of something, the essence of something, the essence of God. It stems from him and who he is. God is holy, and therefore what he chooses to do both in creation and in what we call didasticism, how he, how he teaches us, how he reveals and teaches us, is his will. What he does in creation and what he reveals to us, that's his will, that's his law. So in other words, kids, this is very basic, so I want you to get this too, but the reason that we're told not to lie is because God does not lie. He is truth. So we, don't, um, we ought not to commit adultery because God has ordained marriage, for example, to function a certain way. So we shouldn't covet things because when we covet someone else's stuff, what we're saying is, well, God, you didn't make me right. And I can't be right until I have what they have. So thus you destroy who God has made you to be. So take the advice of Job. Naked I came into this world from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. What do you have that you haven't received? What do you possess in your life that you have not received? The answer is nothing. Even the clothes in your back was given to you. So the law, singular, is the entirety of laws, plural, and each come from God. Now, leading up to and even after the Enlightenment in Europe a few hundred years ago, the emphasis became the laws of nature. How many have heard that, right? The laws of, of nature. Some speak of nature as being merely this shorthand way of explaining the material aspects of the created order that are present because, well, God put them there. You know, the trees grow, and then in the fall, the leaves fall down, and that's just nature. That's the law of nature. It just happens to most trees. Some obviously don't have leaves, but so we, we, kind of, we sort of say it like nature and nature is God. So I'm not jealous for the word. I don't really care for the word nature because I think it's been abused. So maybe when you're telling the kids, let's go outside and explore creation. Maybe that's a better word because it actually focuses on God. And so, you know, maybe consider that. So people speak in those terms, but others like myself would rather keep the Lord at the center and speak of it in terms of the law of God, period. Um, so depending on who you're talking about, it could be a, a, a college student who's a rationalist, for example. He might rather keep God up in the heavens and let the law stuff, well, whatever man decides it should be, should be. And this is at the heart, by the way, of the global warming hoopla. That's this whole AOC, New Green Deal. All, I mean, if we just tax enough, we'll somehow save the planet. Wow, genius, right? if we just give the government back more of the money that it printed erroneously, then suddenly carbon levels are lower. You can't reason with these people, but that's because they have a view of nature, of creation that is er erroneous. 
So this view is commonly referred to as natural law. And again, depending on who we're talking to, even in the medical freedom movement, by the way, this is discussed a lot and it drives me crazy, but I understand what they're trying to say by natural law. But there's a lot of meanings associated with, as if laws exist in nature apart from God. They, that's not a thing, not in Christian biblical worldview. So if you want a holistic view, speak of God's law. Now, it should be noted that the opposite of law is not the gospel. And this is hard for a lot of people to grasp and understand, especially if you're a pietist or a Lutheran. Um, no offense if you're a Lutheran, but they struggle with this piece. The opposite of law isn't the gospel. The opposite of law is lawlessness. So in no way does the New Testament view the law of God as something negative. It does have negative effects for the outlaw, the person that's out of the law, but not for the in-law, the person who is in it. So con consider the gospel. Think about what Jesus' death and resurrection actually does. The good news of his kingdom. What does it do? The death of Jesus and his resurrection was done to move someone from covenant breaker to the status of a covenant keeper. Think of that. You're an outlaw, now you're in. You were breaking the covenant, you were breaking the law of God, you were ungrateful, you were all these things, but you've been brought in by the death and resurrection of Christ into a new status as a law keeper, a covenant keeper. So for the unregenerate, the problem is never the law, but the status that you have under the law. Unbelievers are outlaws. They are literally outside the legal parameters of the covenant. They have broken the law repeatedly, and because of this, they are covenant breakers. So what Christ has come to do is enable the Christian to be free. Romans 8, free from the law of sin and death. And if you keep reading, it says in Romans 8, 4, that this is done so that, quote, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. If you're dead in your sins, you can't fulfill the righteousness of the law. You have to be remade. You have to be born again in order to fulfill the righteousness of the law. And Romans 7, 12 says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous is in good. And many modern Christians reject Paul's statement here, viewing the law as archaic. The law is just so un unjust, and it's just generally mean-spirited. Can you believe what God in the Old Testament did to people because of these things? That just seems so barbaric. How many have heard that? How many have heard that? How many have heard our God be brought into question for his standard of justice? It's in the church, too. Can't believe that they would do that. The death penalty? What are you guys? Savages? How's your prison system working out? See, this is, these views are simply erroneous views of the law. So law is basic to life. That's, that's my main point here. But that God has placed it in the world through the vehicle of his covenant is obvious. It's important to understand. And arguably, it's probably one of the most foundational and basic Christian doctrines that children, you should know. So that you're not you know, tossed about by not knowing which, what's right, what's wrong. Should I listen to the CDC? Should I not listen to the CDC? I mean, I'll tell you the answer is no, you shouldn't. But, but like those are questions that people don't know when they don't have the law of God as their standard. So no one is justified, by the way, because I know internet trolls will come back later and say, oh, he's being a Judaizer, and that's not what the Judaizers were doing. No one is justified or put right with God by keeping the law. 
No theonomist has ever taught that. No one's, that's always reserved for the grace of God. But what about sanctification in your life? What about holiness in your life? That is through the grace of God establishing, establishing us within the law. So grace basically makes you stand up straight inside the law of God. Now when the Apostle Paul, and I've heard this objection to, I'm sure several of you have, he said in Romans 6.14 that you are no longer under law but under grace. So I've had that objection repeated to me several times. And when he said that, he was emphasizing the fact that the gospel frees us from the condemnation of the law. You're no longer under the condemnation of it because you've been brought into the grace of God. So grace doesn't push the law out to the peripheral. It's not a secondary thing we shouldn't think about much at all. Not at all. It quickens us to keep it by bringing it close to us, by bringing us close to God. So we don't keep the law in order to be saved. We are saved, and thus we are supposed to keep the law. That's the idea. <clears throat> so now that we understand the law's relationship to the gospel, I want to go back and make sure we understand the nature of the law itself, what it is in and of itself. So as referenced before, every culture, so look at, look at the chaos of our culture right now. Every culture has a law that is feeding it information. Okay, Fauci is just a talking dingus online, okay? But someone's feeding him information. Every political leader is being fed information. It could be really bad information. Most of the time it is. But every culture is feeding, something is feeding an information. And this information gives it instructions and ethics uh, about ethics and morality and the ordering of life. So law, generally speaking, finds its genesis always based on religious presuppositions. And that's why I've harped on this even last year before this old nonsense started, harped on it from the beginning. There are religious presuppositions that are put in play. Either we are highly advanced apes and Darwin is our savior, or God has made us in his image and we have an immune system. We don't need to strap something on and call it an immune system. That's what information is being fed on both camps. So you have to decide, okay, well, what's the God? Who's the God that we serve? And Rushduni has stated, he said, quote, In any culture, the source of law is the God of that society. In any culture you find on this planet, any Whatever the law is, wherever you find information, wherever the source of law is, that is the God of that society. And he's absolutely right. Wherever law is, religious values, put it there. If you have certain laws about, you know, the global warming things I mentioned, or certain laws about these things, some God put it there. So there's no neutrality. And the reason that this is the case is because of what the law actually is. The law, I'm just speaking generally here about the law of God. The law is a boundary marker given by a holy God. It tells us what constitutes justice, right? The, the righting of wrongs and righteousness. What is good and what is true and what is holy? Children, how do you know what is good and true and holy? The law of God. What does God tell us? And we sometimes call this the ethical judicial aspect of the law of God. But it's a boundary marker that draws out a map for us for how to behave in ways that please God. And that's the foremost aim of the Christian. How do I please God? Now, in Reformed theology, there are, typically they call it the three uses of the law. The three uses are this. One, 
it's a mirror. The law is a mirror that shows us the righteousness and holiness of God, but it also shows us our sin. It shows us just how ugly we can be with our sin sometimes. So it's like a mirror. Second, it has a civil use for the restraint of evil in society. So it tells the magistrate what is a crime, how it should be punished, whether it's restitution, death penalty, etc. Three, the third use of the law, though. It's a guide for the people of God to walk in holiness, performing good works in service of God and man. Storing God's word in our hearts so that we don't sin against him. Psalm 119.11. So what I'm, what I'm advocating here for is for us to go back to the instruction manual. The Torah is a way of life. It's a way of living. It's a way of being human. It's not merely a law code with penalties attached. It's a way of being right. It's a way of justice. It's a way of righteousness. And the law itself is good and true and holy. And it's meant to be a guide for you as an individual person. You too, children. It's also a guide for our families and how our families should function. It's a guide... um, for our church and other churches. It's a guide for the state. It's supposed to be that. And this is because the law demonstrates for for us what it looks like to be righteous and just. So we should long for it. We should advocate for it. We should insist upon it all the time. And we should also know that the idea that the law of God can somehow coexist with humanist laws and status controls, they can't coexist. It's fallacious. So it is the law of God and only the law of God that brings blessings to nations. Man's law or God's law, those are the only two options that we have. So let me bring this to where where I want to bring this to a head. Our world right now is experiencing the curse of adopting man's law as a guide. So whatever you see on TV, social media, your news feed, whatever, just know that this is all the repercussions of choosing man's law as a guide. So instead of the grace of God's instructions, we have chosen instead to have fiat law, the law of the mob, the law of man's God-aspiring wishes. So instead of Christianity being, being the fountainhead, we have humanism and statism. So let me apply this. So instead of restitution, we have prisons that we pay for, that we are taxed to death by. Instead of the death penalty, we have life sentences that continue to feed the prison system. Uh, instead of free markets, we have fascism and status interventionism. You know, think of all the regulations that you have to do to build a small deck on your house. Rather than decentralized currency, we have national banks and the Federal Reserve. Rather than swift justice and speedy trials, we have a clogged injustice system with loopholes and subjectivism. God's law provides local judges handling local cases, but what we have is just a big centralized mess. Man's law always will hire executive powers to encroach on everyday life with constant monitoring. Think of the police cars, you know, to protect and serve, and the joke has always been, no, to, to plunder and steal or to tax you might even say man's law requires brute police force god's law emphasizes the police power of every individual man's law requires total surveillance in pursuit of omnipresence god's law provides privacy free association and no need to replicate the omnipresence of god 
See, at every, every turn, the law of God provides a cheaper, more efficient, less cumbersome form of justice for a society. And frankly, we just don't want it enough. And this is a tremendous problem in the church if this quote-unquote pandemic has taught us anything, is that the church does not know which end is up. The reason our nation was able to change the foundations of law and justice and order is because the church rolled over and said, go for it. We gave up the law of God. We preferred man's law. And then we invented all these theologies to explain away our apathy and our retreat. Oh, it's because Peter says we should honor the emperor. Therefore, he gets to do whatever he wants. As if that sophomoric response has anything to do with exegetical considerations. It's just a way of pushing it off, pushing the responsibility away. I don't have to engage in all these issues. I can do what I want. It's why abortion continues unabated. It's why the currency is becoming worthless. It's why things like sodomy are paraded in the streets. The change in law reflects the change in religion. The change in religion came about because the church fell asleep. And what we must do is learn to love the law of God that Psalm 19 says revives the soul. To learn what it really means to, to, to love by obeying God and by looking at what he has set forth in his word. To treasure the gospel that restores us to God and drives us to the glorious law that appends justice. Or injustice, I should say. So the theocracy we're after is not the rule of men in a state growing more and more powerful. The theocracy that we are after, that we want, is every institution being obedient to God and his law as we bring the good news of Christ's lordship and kingship into every area of life. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess to you that oftentimes we have um, slandered your law. We've slandered you as a result. We have borne false witness to your word by not believing the truth therein. Um, oftentimes, Father, we have tried to explain things away. And efforts, efforts of self-justification or, or minimizing sin or or pushing it off and, and making those things seem more respectable than what they are. God, we, we have done so much in this nation and we deserve far worse than what we have now. And Father, I, I don't know what else you have planned, but I just pray that this nation would be brought to its knees in repentance and that the church would be at the forefront of it. Through the slaughter of innocence and through the injustices of everyday control and and status power, Father, we are a desperate people. And instead of crying out to you last March in repentance and deliverance, we cried out to the MD kings and the philosopher kings who control every area of our lives. So, Father, we are sorry for that. Would you raise up our children, Lord, to defeat the Leviathan state? Would the beast be starved? Father, would true freedom and liberty be exercised among us in this nation, in all the nations, God, as we are called to disciple and teach them? So, Lord, would you help us? We can't teach what we don't know, so would you grow us? Anchor us in your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen.